This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name's Alex Brownsell and today we'll be talking about attention in the context of advertising creativity. Now, attention as a measure of marketing effectiveness has come an awfully long way in a very short space of time. Only a couple of years ago, the industry was fixated on opportunity to view metrics like viewability. Marketers are now beginning to accept that the quality of consumer attention is a key determinant of how their campaigns perform. Agency networks like Omnicom Media Group are adjusting their campaign measurement practices accordingly. Organisations like the Attention Council have done a huge amount to draw a link between attention and business outcomes in a media context, but the creative side of advertising is comparatively underexplored. However, some exciting new thinking has arrived, which we'll be hearing about in just a moment. My two guests today need little introduction to many listeners of this podcast. Orlando Wood is Chief Innovation Officer of System One Group and author of Lemon, an acclaimed book that famously combined neuroscience, advertising research, and art history to highlight the creative shortcomings of today's ad industry. He has just released the follow-up, Look Out, which shares the theory about the role of creative in delivering consumer attention. Orlando is joined by Professor Karen Nelson-Field, a fellow author and the CEO and founder of Amplified Intelligence. Karen has been at the heart of a global movement to research and formalise attention adjustment in advertising, and most recently has pioneered the concept of attention-adjusted share of voice. Welcome both. Good morning. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having us on. Orlando, could you, could you get us started by giving listeners a quick overview of what you're talking about in the new book? Yes, of course. Thanks, Alex. So Lookout is, is I start in the book by talking about the kind of advertising that we might need in this technologically disrupted world. And I sort of make the point that, you know, particularly after the pandemic, with so many businesses moving online and moving their operations online and, and the, their whole company, really, um, is that, you know, these companies are losing their physical availability. And when you lose your physical availability, you lose your mental availability. And of course, the, the loss of mental availability can be countered to some extent um, with advertising. In fact, that becomes advertising's key role is to do brand building work. And it, brand building becomes more important, not less. Uh, if you're a subscription business, if you're an online business, you know, if you've got a in, in a category where search is really important, as Les Binet and Peter Field show in their work. So um, why did I sort of write the book? Well, I wrote it partly because talking to CMOs after Lemon was launched and uh, other senior industry figures, I got the distinct impression that there was a sort of there'd been a loss of confidence in doing brand building advertising. What brand building advertising, you know, requires is a different way of looking at things from you know performance advertising. And there was also a sense that experience had been lost too. And so I thought it would be helpful and you know, hopefully useful for practitioners as well as clients to write a book that talked about the kind of attention that's needed when you're thinking about brand building advertising. 
In the book, you talk about advertising delivering broadbeam and narrowbeam attention. Could you expand on, on what you mean by that a little? Drawing again on the work of Ian McGilchrist, the psychiatrist, neuroscientist, neuroscience researcher, I describe the nature of attention and I describe um, also what happens when attention narrows. Now, Ian talks about two broad types of attention and relates them to the two halves of the brain. And he talks about the way that, that our right hemisphere presents the world to us. And he shows, you know, referencing all sorts of uh, sources, that the, the right brain is responsible for what we might describe as broad beam attention. So it's vigilant. It's sort of always on. Uh, and it's responsible for sustained attention, too, and responsible for this sort of alertness to what's out there, you know, um, as well as sort of divided attention. And what it does is it, it looks at the world uh, and pre presents the world to us. And when it finds something of interest, it passes it to the left brain to bring a kind of direct and, and narrow beam attention to bear on the thing. So, but you always see the wood before you see the trees. So you always see the global picture first before you sort of hone in on, you know, the thing of interest, if you like. And so this broad beam attention and this hierarchy of attention, you know, broad beam first, then narrow beam attention, it strikes me is, is an extremely useful way of thinking about the brain. Advertising mirrors the way that the brain works, you know, that you have this sort of broad reach advertising that needs to capture this broad beam attention. And then, you know, once you've sort of created some sort of interest and, and but also salience for the brand, you know, then at a later point, um, you direct the sort of narrow you know, with narrow targeted advertising, this narrow beam type creative towards people once they're in the window for, for buying. And so that's the sort of um, that's the sort of premise that I set out in in chapter one. But then I sort of describe how in periods of history, particularly following technological leaps, you sometimes find that our attention in generally speaking in society sort of narrows. And if you think about, you know, uh, our world and our mobile phones and devices, you know, our attention has narrowed in the last 15 years. We spend three hours a day, you know, on average on these things. And we've created a world that sort of is rich in a kind of seek and reward, a kind of habit. And and actually that that's a sort of dopamine kind of thing. And it and it prioritizes the left brain is more sensitive to that. And so you find that this sort of narrowing of attention uh, occurs. And I go back to um, two periods in history, which are the, the, the printing press and the, the Reformation that followed, and also the late 19th century and early 20th century. And I look at art in those periods to look at what happened. And I describe um, that, you know, what happens with this narrowing of attention is often you get this sort of stare starting to emerge in art. And you're seeing it today in advertising, too this sort of frontality, this sort of central, symmetrical kind of me looking straight at you in a kind of, um, you know, sort of empty, devitalized way. I show it in the art of the periods, those two periods, but I also say that this signifies other things are going on, a sense of detachment, a loss of vitality, um, and a sort of adversarial stance uh, that starts to take place in these two periods, and I believe, again, is, is happening today. Because when attention narrows, you become sort of fearful and, and aggressive. 
there are some new and I think um, slightly troubling features that I talk about in this book that are starting to emerge in advertising today. The stare being one of them, the stare that coerces is replacing the look that caresses, as I put it, a sort of rigidity in the face that you can, you know, the rigidity and culture that you can see in the face. And then I, I talk uh, using attention data, using, I work with T-Vision in the States and with Lumen in, um, I should have worked with you, Karen, perhaps we can put that right in the future. I, I work with those uh, folks and show working with System 1's emotional response data too, that there are certain features in advertising which you would expect to, uh, you know, appeal to the broad beam attention of the right brain, which in fact do capture attention better and more likely to elicit an emotional response. And they're features, you know, such as animals, characters with agency, doing things, you know, dialogue, people talking, some sense of connection between people, you know, spontaneous change in facial expression, um, people touching, you know, uh, music, uh, something happening out of the ordinary. Karen, I know that you talk in your book about, you know, the unexpected. Well, I found the same thing. Um, you know, a, a clear sense of place, a scene unfolding with progression in live time. These are all things that the, the right brain's alert to and interested in. The living, the unexpected, something happening out of the ordinary, music, all of these things. And then I show that the sort of features associated with the left hemisphere of the brain as I describe it sort of flatness words on the screen rhythmic soundtracks self-consciousness product centricity above all this kind of stare you know at the camera um, pushes people away that sort of advertising sort of causes people to detach um, and it's advertising for broad beam attention the living and out of the ordinary that, that draws people in that connects them uh, you know, with what you're, what you're connects with them. And so then the, the final chapter, I talk about um, how we might go about this, how we might shift our own attention, how we why might we look out um, to create advertising that connects with people. And, and I, I, I talk, I hope we can perhaps go into that in a bit more detail later, but I talk a bit about, about how we might do that. Thank you, Orlando. Thanks for that run through. And it is, it is a fascinating read and um, you know, I just like Lemon, I, I I really do hugely enjoy how you you're able to draw those those um, parallels with history, with you know, uh, 500 years ago, 100 years ago, and, and and see how perhaps something similar is is happening again today. Uh, Karen, you've obviously done a huge amount of, of research in this area. What would be really interesting to hear from from your perspective is the extent to which what Orlando has just outlined dovetails or, or doesn't dovetail with with your findings on attention. Yeah, I mean, that was an amazing opener, Orlando. Hard to follow those big shoes. Um, but I will, I will come back to this concept of lookout because I think there's more to that than even, you know, from the creative side. I mean, you know that obviously my background is media versus creative, albeit we were just having a conversation that my first book, which we ended up I guess, launching in the same place in London, mine was actually, yeah. So mine was on emotions, in particular, the ability for emotions to improve share ratios, so share and view ratios. So that was right back when, you know, viral was a thing. So I'm, I'm totally on board that creative does play a role in um, metrics such as on sharing, such as attention, and we even see that in what we do but I sort of also see that there's a baseline that occurs that you is hard 
to change and that is largely due to the functionality of the platform. So so we have two different sides, but I think we both come together and that they both play a role. Um, but what I've been working on more recently, um, I guess I've done a fair bit of work around you know, how the ecosystem is landing from um, an adoption or an attention adoption perspective. And, you know, I've sort of written some work um, around this concept that, you know, I I truly believe that we as an industry are quickly moving in the innovation diffusion curve to critical mass. We're not quite in the middle of it, but we're certainly at the front end of it. So, you know, if anyone knows anything about the innovation diffusion curve, you know that once you get to that point, sort of FOMO occurs and, you know, the landslide happens and and I truly believe and I hear from every single day every agency every publisher is asked you know what what is your attention strategy so so we see it sort of landing now in three parts of the ecosystem so you know it's indexes for planning I guess prediction for trading and you know tag technology for proving or verification so so we definitely see that's happening um, but you asked me specifically about, you know, what work have we, we done? Um, we've done a fair bit. I mean, we, we do have done some stuff on mental availability. Um, I might actually call on that now. Um, this year in the US, we worked with some fairly big brands. I mean, you know, we both know that mental availability has a causal relationship with market share change. And basically what that means is if your mental availability score increases, as will likely your market share over time, certainly follow it soon. Um, and the, the reverse is, is the same. So if you, you know, if you have a mental availability decline, your, mental, your market share will decline as well. So what we know, though, is um, you know, that's absolutely the true north measure. So you know, a lot of um, researchers talk about all these different funnel metrics, but a lot of the metrics are bias, you know, intention and, and recall and things like that are related to circumstance and the ability to remember or not, um, you know, how if you say you're going to intend to do something, it's likely you won't. Um, but mental availability to Orlando's point is absolute true north. So we this year decided to try and look for a direct link between attention and mental availability. And it's funny because I kind of am at the point where I'm I won't say sick of people asking me because, but it, I, I'm certainly, I'm frustrated with people sort of saying, what does attention get you? <laughs> so, you know, at the end of the day, what we wanted to do is go, well, actually, if you don't get any attention, will your brand decline? And the answer is a categorical yes. So we did actually find a link between attention and mental availability uplift. And again, the inverse was true. So, you know, to see that, I mean, we've only seen it in one country. So if you know anything about me, I'm a generalizable kind of research person, but we are in market now with four additional countries to test it out. But that wasn't surprising to me. And I'm sure that wouldn't be surprising to Orlando either, but we just published against that. Um, The other thing we've done a fair bit of um, is some work and share a voice. Um, So what I've been trying to sort of talk to the industry about is the flow and effects from a currency problem. Um, so just to reiterate that our currency problem is that, you know, it's failing because relative value of one impression can't be quantified over another. Um, so so what, I, what I mean by that is that, you know, any measurement system, model, methodology, concept that relies on the notion of equitable impressions 
is going to fail. <laughs> so, you know, we know that that is obviously the, ob the bleeding obvious, which is media buying and, and trading, but, um, and, and planning, but, but budgeting is in there as well. So a lot of, you know, brands sort of rely on the concept of budgeting f using share of voice, share of market modeling. Um, and, you know, the concept of that is that if you, sh if you spend more relative to competitors, your market share, there's a relationship between market share and share of voice. So it'd be like mental availability. But what's happening is it's hard for advertisers to know that anymore. So if you've got a million dollars and you pick poor attention-based platforms, yet your competitors have the same amount of impressions but on better and the same amount of money spent but on better performing platforms, their share of voice will go up and yours will go backwards because you know you're having an attention and underlying attention problem so your brand will decline what i will say what what is interesting you talk about the concept of lookout um i've been using this concept in a slightly different context for a lot of years so if you know anything about computer vision there's inward facing and outward facing um, and so i talk about the best attention measurement is not that that looks inward which is viewability proxies device-based because humans don't have to play a role in those metrics moving but when you look out or when you use outward facing computer vision so it's basically gaze-based that's when you see a human behaving um, so this is what I love about your book because I think there's some some interesting crossover there so so look out for me is a gold standard in terms of where you know the measurement industry is going Thanks, Karen. Well, I totally agree. And I think, you know, what, what you were saying about extra share of voice is absolutely fascinating and essential, it seems to me, you know, that, uh, you know, not all not all um, budgets are equal, are they not? And you sort of need to you need to know what what works. And um, and funny enough, your points you were making about mental availability. I work with Peter again in this book and I looked at it from a creative point of view. So I overlaid some of these well, I looked, at, I looked at these different features of advertising that you might expect to hold attention better uh, and to elicit an emotional response, you know, sort of character, incident and place as I sort of give them shorthand. And we, we, we used the IPA's effectiveness data bank and we, we looked at campaigns from the last four years and we found that it was the campaigns that had these right brain features for broad beam attention that captured people's, you know, attention and elicited an emotional response that were really the most likely to drive um, market share gain, profit gain, uh, sales gain, but also more likely to work through a kind of fame or buzz, you know, way of working. You know, they're more likely to drive salience, more likely to drive fame. They're also more likely to drive trust and brand esteem effects too. Um, they sort of connect in a way, you know, they refresh the parts that other campaigns cannot reach. Um, they sort of get get you there much better than these very mechanistic left brain campaigns, which do sort of drive, uh, they're more likely to drive if they do anything. They're more likely to drive those direct effects, driving you to a website or an app or something. But they don't, you know, that's they, they, can, they fail, you know, really to drive these broad and long, what I describe as lasting effects, you know, and we... Les and Peter have talked about the long and short of it. I think it's better to talk about rather than long-term effects, lasting effects. You know, um, 
because these things you know accumulate over time and you know it, it it's important to think of it in that way rather than you know we have to wait 3 years for something to happen you know so anyway but that that's i thought it was just interesting that um you know it, when you look at the creative itself i think there's evidence to suggest that the creative has a role particularly you know i think in television i think with with these in feed and um you know pre roll it's you know you're kind of you can build a brand that way but it's more difficult because you only have a certain few seconds really uh unless you're you know you're doing something really quite radical um that the constraints of those platforms may as you yourself have shown you know have make it really quite difficult um, yeah i mean what i love about what you tell me is <clears throat> i think we agree on so many levels i mean i don't disagree that creative i can see it in my own work that creative plays a role in attention and and you know you, you can see i mean you can see vast differences between the attention gained so if you've got creative a versus creative d creative a on average gets let's just say 7 seconds of attention whereas creative d gets 4 seconds of attention but what's interesting about that and this is why we talk about you know the fact that the functionality of the platform plays quite a significant role is because let's just use creative a which is the best performing it's still only best performing on one platform and i won't say which one over another but it's it's and then it and then it declines so that 8 seconds turns into 6 seconds when you switch platforms and it's 6 seconds turns into 5 seconds when you switch platforms and that 5 seconds turns into three seconds and turns into two seconds and it's commensurate with the performance of the overall platform and that's that's the same pattern across all of those different creatives so what my point is is that if the creative was the principal driver that eight seconds would remain constant across all platforms and it doesn't so i guess my point is that you can have the most amazing highly emotive piece of content but if it's not placed in a performance format it hasn't got a chance of being noticed right and that's just the nature of the function and I saw that in my first book so you know at the time I was kind of researching this concept of viral marketing thinking that you know if 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 you do something really creative then it will spread virally um, but the diffusion is the opposite so the reality is you have to pay for views to get a longer tail so it's the same sort of effect so I love everything about creative but I do think you can't have no attention like you can't have a, a, a format that you know you're scrolling past so fast yeah. and then expect a beautiful piece of emotional content yeah. to, to rise forward uh, it's very difficult isn't it I mean you know, you know you're in a kind of goal orientated mode when you're scrolling through a feed aren't you and um well it's you know, distraction right yeah, so yeah. yeah i mean there's other things to do to your point there's yeah. it's more fun things to do than be looking at an ad yeah <laughs> if i could just interject uh, at that point i think this speaks to a obviously a challenge that a lot of brands and, and marketers are, are really considering at the moment which is how to potentially build brands to, to create that broad beam attention in a digital and mobile context which is where media consumption has shifted particularly obviously that acceleration we've seen since covid 19 arrived um you know how do you build a brand on an amazon page is that even possible and and, and reading your book orlando you, you seem and and karen i think you you sound like you agree that actually it's not all things are achievable in in all situations is that fair to say 
I think so, yes. I mean, you know, I, I show how creative can make a little bit of difference, you know, in a in an in-feed um, or a pre-roll. I'm thinking more pre-roll, actually. Pre-roll, I think there's, there's a bit more scope uh, environment. You know, you can you, you can hold attention for a little bit longer and create a stronger emotional response, um, you know, with, with a certain sort of creative in pre-roll, for sure. Um, but you know you are limited by the by the platforms. Uh, there is a sort of an inbuilt constraint, as Karen sort of I think describes it. So I think that's that's right. And so it is difficult. And so one of the questions I ask in the book, in fact, when I finish with the book, you know, Paul Feldwick talks about advertising as putting on a show, and I say, you know, with all budgets sort of going towards um, online video and away from TV. And with TV companies themselves looking at addressable and highly targeted TV, where is the stage for our brand building show? You know, uh, where is it? And I think this is something we need to think seriously about. One of the questions I ask, you know, I don't have the answer, um, but that is. And but one of the things I do say at the end is, um, you know, is that thank thank goodness for Karen, uh, because oh. you know, <laughs> because Karen thank is goodness. sort of leading the charge on attention measurement, and I think that's really important across the, the different media platforms and channels available. Well, you know what? Can I add to that? You know what the stage is? The stage is the brand. So bring the brand forward. So I think there's two sides to creative, and I think what has been lost is. You know, I know we've all kind of accepted that different formats play different role. We've all accepted that different formats, you know, drive or foster more attention or less attention. That's fine. We accept that. But the second cousin to creative is branding, you know. Yeah. So yeah. so why don't we do more with that? I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, getting attention is directly and for the sole purpose of being able to recognize what brand is advertising so that you will go buy it so you know i get all the creative i get i get that you know something beautiful and emotive plays a role but if if the brand isn't present yes in the time when the largest majority of the viewing audience is watching actively because there's a quick drop off right then regardless of how beautiful and emotive it is you've lost it Right. So so I feel like the one little other piece of the puzzle is the the, the branding, uh, you know, being be more creative with the brand and be more creative with the brand up front. And, that, and you know, that's that's one of the reasons why I, I talk, you know, quite a lot about what I call a fluent device, you know, a character, for instance, who is known you know, like the M&M's characters, you know, because they're instantly recognizable, but they don't they also don't put you off. In fact, they might draw you in <laughs> to what you're seeing. Um so, so you know, there are there are there are ways in which to do branding, which are, you know, I suppose more implicit, but actually will also work. Um, but it's funny, you know. Obviously, you know, I'm trained Aaron Bass, so you know that's Jenny Romaniuk's work around yeah. distinctive assets. But you know, how if you read any of her work, distinctive assets take 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 a lot of time they do. and probably broad reach. That's right. Easier to establish in the first place. So for, for brands that are, that are not necessarily the largest in the category and have failed to build distinctive assets, how do they do that in this age where attention is fleeting? Yeah. So, yeah, back to your question, where's yeah. the stage? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, one of the things, I and mean, Jenny's done some brilliant work, uh, you know, led the field on um, distinctive assets. One of the things that I think that I think is important is that you know um, 
colours, shapes, fonts, all of those things are extremely important, but they are sort of a bit static or can be a bit static. And so when I talk about a fluent device or a character, it's it lives, you know, and that whole and it moves and it holds our attention as well as eliciting emotional response. So it does all the things that, you know, Jenny sort of describes and she talks about characters, too, of course. Um, but but she that you know it does it in a way that is in, of interest to the right brain that's of interest to the broad you know captures the broad beam attention and that's why I'm so concerned that they've disappeared you know over the last twenty years you know characters are, are, are looked down on by many uh, uh, people and they've gone. I have to give an example, and I'm so sorry that we're totally hijacking this podcast, but. Um, <laughs> I love the example where, because the question then remains, so if unexpectedness is a trigger, how do you maintain unexpectedness if you have a distinctive asset, even a character? I mean, then you, you know, how do you make that attention seeking if, or attention attracting if it's static to your point? So the best example I've ever seen, um, and, you know, excuse the, the weirdness here, but was um, an example where, um, you know, Colonel Sanders has been a character for many, many years. And I can't remember who the agency was, but it was a few years ago. They brought out hot Colonel Sanders, as in... Oh, yeah, hit, hunky you know, Colonel Sanders. Hunky, <laughs> hunky Colonel Sanders. And, oh, my gosh, it was the funniest and most attention-gaining yeah. yeah. thing I've ever seen because it was so different and so hunky <laughs> and it, so funny. Some might say slightly disturbing as well. But... <laughs> oh, well, you would say that. I thought it was funny and nice. <laughs> anyway, so that's a classic example of a genius who's gone, you know, we have to get attention. We have to use our distinctive asset. So let's sort of switch it up a bit and see how we go. And, you know, to this day I use it as a great example. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about a fluent device, a move, a living sort of thing, is that you know, uh, consistency is it, it's it's wonderful in one sense for mental availability, but it's kind of the enemy of movement too. And so you need to have something that 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 sort of can live and move, and that that you know that's where characters come in. And that, but that is sort of familiar, but that sort of is you know probably eighty percent familiar and twenty percent different and new and so it sort of it draws you in each time but within a familiar construct you know and that's what that's what I think is so great about those long-running living fluent devices is that they do that and you know there's a there's a scenario that plays out which is broadly familiar you know but you know is different each time and I think and that's also very highly comedic too and humor I think is you know talk about humor in the book the new book and uh, well both books actually but you know that 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 it connects it's a laughter is a sense that that you know a connection has been made and love that's, it uh, so and important. i i use i mean that is just makes me think again i'm probably going to end up in the press on this but i think of marriage and i think you know you've been married for 10 years you want your partner to do something unexpected and unfunny and you know not predictable <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, love it. That's funny. I don't know what you mean, Karen. But no. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We talked quite a lot there. Obviously, we focused on on visual um, media, uh, video, television, and and the, the brand assets accordingly. What role does audio have to play and sound have to play in, in all of this? And I think, Karen, this was something you started looking into uh, a year or two ago. Uh, attention in an audio context as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there would be some of that in Orlando's book. We'll have to go back to him, but I I have. So we've moved on from simple sound on, off and volume and we're actually now, we've done it in three countries so far and about to scale it up, but we're starting to look at um, how we can actually build our attention metrics for audio-based inventory um, because it does play a role. So, you know, particularly in moments, so particularly in, um, and, and it's not that dissimilar to normal visual attention. So, so the less distractions you have in an audio context, the more attentively you listen. And we know this because we've figured out a way to reverse engineer our, um, the relationship between visual attention or active visual attention and outcomes. So we're, we're able to model in the reverse so we can clearly see some patterns that yeah put someone in a car for example listen to a podcast they're going to listen to it more attentive intensively than attentively i should say um then um you know if they're sort of walking doing doing the housework or, or something in the background yeah i mean what we i found in my you know recent work that um music in particular um and anything with the sort of melody and harmony but also the voice so vocal intonation, a kind of uh, emphasis in the voice and accents, all of those sorts of things, they they're of interest to the to the right hemisphere to the you know and they capture they help to capture broad beam attention and um, you know the right hemisphere is more it's what gives us our sense of music and and uh, more sensitive to pitch um, than the left hemisphere you know all of these things things that kind of I think we knew 30 instinctively 30 40 years ago when it came for, to a creative you know appreciation of creative and the craft that went into it the jingle you know that when when you're um sometimes uh when people have a, a a lesion or a stroke in their um left hemisphere which is responsible for speech um they're still able to sing a song with words because the right hemisphere is you know music and and the voice they're all bound up in the right hemisphere and so you know these are this is re really important stuff folks and you know the, the the demise of the jingle i you know i'm i'm very sad about because you know it's a great way it's a great um distinctive asset but it's a great way of getting things you know in people's minds and memories you know we could probably all sing uh, add jingles from 30 years ago you know and still remember them very very well now um so I think, you know, music and sound and, um, you know, we, rhythm has sort of push, seems to push people away a little bit. And there's a lot of rhythm in advertising, you know, sort of um, rhythmic soundtracks, mechanistic sounds that, that um, you know, just become wearing and, and people just sort of look away. And that's from our data anyway. Um, and they don't elicit an emotional response, not a good one anyway. And um so, you know, I think really important music and sound. So that's why we listen to you so much because of your beautiful accent, your wonderful emphasis. And <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so you, you're, a, you're a, a, a sample of your own research, really. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yes. Well, uh, well, you know, it's important, isn't it, to, you know, to, to have a sort of um, there needs to be some uh, emphasis and sing song, you know, in your kind of in your voice. And that helps people to, to, to listen. I think that's absolutely right. 
it, it's so fascinating and and yeah i agreed karen i could listen to orlando talking about this um, all day long but unfortunately we are we are starting to um to run out of time um i wondered if i could ask you both just to to give the listeners a, a bit of a clue about what what might be coming next orlando for you what's the next in the crosshairs for you research wise karen what are you going to be working on over the next kind of six months 12 months orlando do you want to go first Good grief! I've only just written this book. Uh, like, uh, you, you want me to move on to that? I'm, I'm, I'm still talking about this one. Um, good question. I think you know. Often, uh, you know, once you've just uh, released something, launched something, start talking about it with people, then you know you have to sort of listen to what people are saying and and what might be of interest, and and also, you know, the way I work anyway, I just I just sort of read around. A subject and, and lots of subjects at once and they all somehow it all comes together so you know i'm i'm probably not you know i'm probably not as goal focused as i should or perhaps i'm 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 perhaps i'm perhaps that's the right way to be uh, gradually thoughts things of interest in most so i can't i don't actually know uh, is my honest answer um, i'm going to wait and see um how this one plays out that seems eminently reasonable uh, as you say it has only just <laughs> look out has only just been released um, but karen I, I know you always have a, a lot of projects on the go what's what's next for you yeah i mean for us it's um <clears throat> deeper data more countries um but we're also moving towards outdoor and cinema not from a gamification on a pc <clears throat> pardon me but uh, literally setting up cameras in real-time uh, outdoor um, scenarios and also, as I said, c uh, cinema. So we're trying to expand the models that we already have because we have television models and, and mobile models. So, so that's big for us. And then all of that data is uh, being sort of packaged up and put into products that actual advertisers can use. So I won't go into that much detail with those, but in depth and, and width across different formats, including audio. Well, Karen, perhaps we, could, we should put our heads together on uh, creative and media and uh, see what we well, there do. There you go. And you have it on WARC tonight. <laughs> you, you heard it. You heard it here first. Um, uh, thank you both so much um, for joining us today. I'm off to go and remind myself of pictures of the hunky Colonel Sanders. Um, <laughs> Lookout is available to buy, I believe, from the IPA and on Amazon too. And you can read recent articles from both Orlando and Karen at walk.com. To make sure you never miss an episode of the Walk podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. 